Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll explain how to tell the difference between a cold virus and seasonal allergies. I do a physical exam and there are things that I can see in the nose and throat that can sometimes tip me off if there's a bacterial infection versus viral versus allergy. Then we'll discuss mental health treatment and why medication with psychotherapy may be more effective than medication alone. It was surprising how strong the difference was. We had seen some studies in the past which suggested that people preferred to talk about their problems rather than medicate themselves. And we'll talk about how to improve doctor-patient communications. You know, you don't have to be friends with your patient. I mean, you could be. Um, but the thing is, they, they want to develop a relationship so that they know that uh, they can trust you. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk with a psychologist about treatment options for mental health disorders. Then we'll talk about doctor-patient communications, but first we'll discuss the difference between cold viruses and seasonal allergies. If you're coughing and sneezing, it can be trickier than you might think to determine if you've got a regular cold or seasonal allergies. So I'm talking today with an otolaryngologist or an ear, nose, and throat doctor who can help us make sense of our symptoms. Dr. Heidi Marzouk is an assistant professor at Upstate Medical University who takes care of adults and children. Welcome, Dr. Marzouk. Thank you for having me. So when the seasons change in central New York, we seem to be susceptible to illness, whether from viruses or from allergens. So Let's talk about the symptoms that are common this time of year and how do you decide which goes with what? Sure. Um, we all tend to have the sniffles around this time of year. And the question is, uh, do I need antibiotics? Is it run-of-the-mill cold or could it be something more? Uh, typically, uh, when things are consistent during seasons, it's hard to tell the difference. Uh, but usually, your common cold is not going to last for three to four weeks. Right. Okay. Usually a viral, Duration. yeah. Usually a viral infection is going to last, uh, you know, seven to ten days maximum. Uh, typically, when we have allergies or a viral infection, the secretions do tend to be clear. Uh, but when we have bacterial infections, sometimes things can uh, turn color, uh, and that might be a tip off. Typically, okay. when we have allergies, we don't have fevers or body aches, although you can't have fatigue with both. In terms of sinus pain and pressure, at least 75% statistically of people can have some sinus pressure just from allergies alone. So okay. again, it's a confounding factor that we're not sure of. And in fact, allergies can predispose you to sinus infections on a recurrent basis. So the idea is um, if your symptoms are prolonging, it's better to have them checked out. Because uh, there's definitive testing that we can use to see if you do have environmental allergies and to try and flush things out. Oh, there. Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to ask about that. Mm -hmm. um, sneezing, itchy, watery eyes, those sound more like allergies, but not necessarily? No. Okay. Sneezing yes. can be a, a, a very common symptom in allergies as well as the eye symptoms. 
Uh, but throat symptoms can also be allergic to. Sore throats are common uh, in people with allergies. Uh, but they're also all symptoms of having a cold or viral uh, illness too. Again, it depends on the duration uh, as a, as a tip-off. So um, a person might not be able to figure this out on their own. They may need a doctor's help. There's some tests or mm-hmm. sure. what would you do with a patient who comes? So typically when patients come into my office, it's not for the uh, you know, five-day common cold, right? Once you've made it to a specialist, probably you, you've been tried to treat a cold and you're not shaking whatever it is that's going on fairly easily. Uh, you'll try an over-the-counter Claritin. You'll try, you know, some over-the-cold, over-the-counter cold medicine, and it's it's not working. So basically, I do a physical exam, and there are things that I can see in the nose and throat that can sometimes tip me off if there's a bacterial infection versus viral versus allergy. In the office, we can perform allergy testing, which can take as little as 20 minutes uh, to see if your body does have a predisposition to react to certain things in the environment. And different uh, time courses can point to different allergens. People always ask me, well, it's winter time. Why am I having symptoms? You can have allergies during the winter. Um, some allergies we categorize as kind of all year round, like cat, dog, dust, and mold. Things from indoor more indoor, what we call perennial allergies. Okay. And we could also have allergies from weeds, typically fall. Is it going to be your bad season? Trees, typically spring. Grasses, typically summer. So, so those if things you're can allergic to like weeds or grasses, does that make you, are you more likely to be allergic also to dust and molds or so, not necessarily? So we say that sometimes the body has a predisposition towards allergies and part of that's genetic, part of that's environmental. Uh, there is a, a significant proportion of people that will be allergic to both, there, and that's probably closer to 30 40%. And then some people are just seasonal, some people are just perennial or indoor okay. allergies. Some people I know, there just seems to be a wide range of suffering. Some people with quote-unquote allergies seem to be mildly annoyed, and then others are just miserable. So what accounts for that variable? Uh, Partially, it's uh, genetic. And then when we uh, test for allergies, you can test the severity of the allergy. Basically, when you have an allergy, your body's developing antibodies to something it shouldn't, right? Uh, To a Uh, a tree or a weed or something in the environment. And depending on how many of those antibodies you have circulating, sometimes that'll correlate to how bad your symptoms are. And again, if you're allergic to dust and trees, during spring, you're going to get exposed to dust and trees, trees. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes there are foods that can overlap uh, in terms of the way they're structured with some of the environmental stuff. And again, it's all kind of dose-dependent on how much you're getting of all of these different factors. Interesting. So, uh, and you treat uh, adults and children. Do Correct. children, do you see, like, babies with allergies? Are they born with... So typically, especially with seasonal allergies, you have to be exposed to multiple seasons for your body to develop the antibodies to those things in the environment. So uh, typically above age three is the earliest we really start to consider environmental allergies. However, kids start having solid foods far uh, earlier than that. So um, typically now close to six months of age, kids can develop more food allergies. So under three, that's something I consider. But the evidence for food allergies causing, you know, your typical hay fever symptoms is much less strong compared to the environmental stuff. So 
Interesting. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on air, and we're talking with Dr. Heidi Marzouk, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at Upstate Medical University. Um, I wanted you to explain a little bit more about the testing for allergies. Sure. How do you determine what someone's allergic to? What are they? So, you know, um, sometimes we have this uh, picture in our mind of uh, a thousand needles on the back when we think right. of allergy testing, and now it's become a little bit more uh, I guess, patient-friendly and streamlined. So obviously we can't test for everything in the environment. That would be extremely cumbersome. So typically what I do in the office, I try to narrow it down to things that are specific for our area or to the Northeast United States. And we kind of take a couple from the major, you know, a couple of allergens from the major categories. There are cases where um, I'm very highly suspicious that it's one or two things, and I'll only test for those. And there are two major ways that we can test that are, I guess, in vogue these days. One is prick testing, which are just some rockers that we roll over the skin. And we look to see if you get an itchy bump, okay, after 20 minutes. Okay, no needles involved, just some prongs where it feels like you're getting poked with a pencil. Another way that we can test for allergies is through blood work. So a simple blood draw, just like you have done for, at the doctor's office, uh, and it'll test you specifically for uh, antibodies to certain things in the environment and or, and or food. Both are available through both methodologies. Neat. Well, that sounds a lot less painless than than before with sure. the pricks. Um, so once once you know that you have an allergy to these specific things, mm-hmm. what what then? So uh, again, there are those of us who with some over-the-counter, you know, uh, medication do fine, and that that's the end of that, and you use it as needed. There are those of us who uh, that's not enough. Okay. Uh, and again, it has to be tailored to the different patients, right? So there's a variety of things. There's oral antihistamines. There's different kinds prescription. of prescription uh, antihistamines, both over the counter and prescription. Okay. There is different nasal sprays that we can use, right, involving nasal steroids, nasal antihistamines, and things like of that nature. Uh, there's other uh, modalities such as Montelukast or things that we've typically thought of for asthma that actually can help allergies very nicely. And for the really bad flares, sometimes you do need a little bit of oral steroid, although I try to avoid it if I can. If that cocktail, and sometimes it is a cocktail of different things, really doesn't work, that's when I start to consider desensitizing a patient. And those are for the more severe um, uh, cases of allergies, where the, the usual uh, things that we think of when we think of allergy medicine is really not working, and you need some long-term you know, benefit. Is that allergy shots? Mm-hmm. Okay. So That's... there are different ways to desensitize patients these days, the most classic of which is allergy shots. Mm-hmm. So with that, are you getting an injection of a little bit of whatever you're allergic to? Or? Yeah. So what you're trying to do when you do allergy shots is you're developing an an- almost like an antibody to the antibody so that um, the body is not so Um, the immune system is not so active against the environment. So you start off with very small doses of what you're allergic to, and you introduce it to the body and gradually increase the amount until there's like a standard, what we call concentrate amount, that your body's going to tolerate. And that can give you uh, years of symptom control and decreased need for medication. That's what I was going to ask. How long does it last? But it's yeah. lasting. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, yeah. Typically five to ten years. There are people who never need a booster after that, but there are uh, some of my patients who I'll boost with the desensitization after they had maybe allergy shots ten years ago or more. 
Do people ever um, use this as a reason to leave central New York, saying that their allergies are too bad and they've got to move somewhere? So with nasal allergies, you know, uh, it does affect quality of life quite significantly, although I would say that if you have um, asthma, uh, you know, and your breathing is affected, that's a different um, animal, and sometimes that can affect uh, your quality of life more. With central New York, a lot of our allergens are humidity-specific, such as trees and grasses, molds, etc. And we have a lake effect. So uh, that does affect uh, the amount of allergen in the environment. Have I ever said, I heard of my patients say, I am moving specifically for this cause? Not yet. Um, but uh, it does affect people quite significantly. If you moved and relocated to another part of the country, though, would you just... Uh, pick up, would you be allergic to stuff there too? So, so things that are, especially things like mold and dust are very humidity specific. So the more arid uh, and dry parts of the country, states like Arizona, Nevada, you know, because they're less humid, the, the, the counts of the allergen in the environment do tend to be less. Mm. However, there are other things that you can be allergic to. And again, that's why our allergy panels are uh, regional, region specific. Um, if, if a person has something, diabetes or heart disease or other um, diseases, does that make their allergies better or worse, or does it give you more complications? With the diseases you mentioned specifically, no. There mm-hmm. are, um, dis- you know, disease entities that tend to kind of uh, go with or tell us that you might have a more uh, genetic predisposition towards allergies, such as eczema, asthma. Uh, and things of that nature. Now, most people would start off seeing a primary care doctor first if they've got symptoms that they're they're not sure about. Which are the patients that find their way to you or your colleagues that specialize in ear, nose, and throat disorders? So uh, allergy is kind of a mixed bag, right? We have allergy immunology doctors that see a lot of allergic patients, primary care, um, pulmonologists, and they all do a fantastic job. Sometimes people just make their way to the ENT first because their, their symptoms are much more anatomically specific to the ear, nose, and throat region. Uh, and sometimes uh, while the, the asthma is being managed great, the nasal congestion might need a little hit. And so I work with a lot of the um, allergy doctors and pulmonologists, etc. so that, like I said, anatomy-specific problems sometimes are better addressed and sometimes I can do a great job on the nose and sinuses but I ask for my pulmonology for example colleagues to help me um, because I'm not an asthma expert and they do a great job with that so it's really collaborative but everybody's got their own real estate so to speak that they're taking care of. Interesting well thanks I really appreciate you being here to talk about this let me remind listeners that you're a Dr. Heidi Marzouk an assistant professor of otolaryngology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, whether medications with talk therapy are more effective than medications alone on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A variety of medications are available for use in treating depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. Do drugs work on their own, or do they work better when paired with psychotherapy or talk therapy? Psychologist Roger Greenberg is here to discuss this. He is a distinguished professor and head of the psychology division in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Greenberg. Glad to be here, Amber. Thanks for being here. Well, first, I want to ask you about your very first psychology-related experiment back in elementary school involving ants and whether they could learn to navigate a maze you created using dominoes. Oh, you, I, think, I think you read my biography. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was way back when uh, we got interested in the question of could an ant learn to navigate uh, a maze? And so we built this maze out of dominoes, and uh, we discovered that ants can climb over dominoes. It was a major breakthrough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that um, did that tell you, though, at an early age that this is, uh, science was something you wanted to get? to get into or psychology or? I've always been interested in people and the the issue of the fact that talking somehow is helpful to people in dealing with their emotional problems and can undo emotional negative states like depression or anxiety. And uh, I've been involved in that for several decades and written many things about it and uh, have a active practice where uh, I get to see this in action every day. So tell me what sparked your interest in comparing the results of um, drug therapy and psychotherapy for problems like depression and anxiety. Well, it, it sort of started uh, way back when, when I did my dissertation, was uh, on talk therapy and the issue of expectations and how did that influence uh, talk therapy. But from that moved to uh, a series of projects I did with a colleague, Seymour Fisher, here at Upstate on the uh, scientific credibility of Freud's theories and therapy. And we wrote a couple of books on this. And in the process of doing the books, uh, we became interested in how good are the results for the major drugs that are used for depression and anxiety. We had been looking at all of the uh, talk therapies and how good were they. And now the issue became, uh, are drugs as good or better, or are they not as good or better? And we began looking at all the research literature on medications and antidepressants and found some very interesting things. So what did you learn about antidepressants that was surprising? One of the things that seemed most surprising was that the difference between antidepressants and uh, placebos was not all that great in the studies. Uh, and yet the, all of the advertisements in the literature seemed to suggest that this was a a tremendous breakthrough, uh, and and that uh, that surprised us in that the scientific literature didn't look nearly as strong as the advertising literature looked. Interesting, huh? Wow. Well, uh, you had a paper published in the American Psychological Association Journal of Psychotherapy, in which you explain that people seeking help for mental disorders are almost twice as likely to refuse or not complete the recommended treatment if it involves only the medication, um, did this was this surprising to you as well? Uh, y yes, it was to some degree, but it was surprising how strong the difference was. We had seen some studies in the past which suggested that people preferred to talk about their problems rather than medicate themselves uh, for their problems. And the difference turned out to be uh, quite strong when we looked at actually thousands of patients in terms of their preferences, and that they would prefer to talk about their problems rather than uh, be medicated for their problems. Why, why do you think people prefer that? Because sometimes you think about people just, you know, seeking a quick fix, a pill that's going to take care of things. So why would you say 
people prefer talk therapy? Well, one of the things we discovered as we looked through the literature was that the drugs had two basic disadvantages. Uh, one, they produce side effects, oh. which the uh, talk therapy obviously does not. At the same time, we also discovered that uh, people taking uh, drugs are not learning ways to deal with their problems. Uh, and talk therapy does produce ways to deal with problems. And one of the outgrowths of that is the relapse rates are much higher if you're on an antidepressant uh, than if you're on uh, talk therapy and the, the therapy ends. If the therapy ends with talking, the relapse rate is relatively low. If it ends with you stop taking your drugs, the relapse rate is relatively high. And then you probably feel like you can't succeed without your drug. Yes. Whether that's true or not. but y Yes. I mean, the drug becomes something that you become uh, dependent on, not necessarily physiologically, but emotionally dependent on. And that's, uh, that is an issue. Well, I would also think that there's something about having a relationship with a therapist, too, and feeling like there's someone who does care. Does that come into it as it well? It comes into it very strongly. And there's been a lot of research uh, evidence uh, on that fact at this point. Surprisingly, uh, the relationship you have with your caregiver is an important element in, in how well you will do with either talk therapy or drug therapy. Uh, and the fact is that most people who are getting the drugs... Uh, do not develop much of a relationship with the caregiver, that they may only meet with somebody 15 minutes every month or two, uh, and that does not promote the kind of uh, solutions to the problems that they're dealing with that coming in and seeing a talk therapist uh, would promote. Okay, well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychologist Roger Greenberg about the use of medications and or talk therapy to treat a variety of mental health disorders. Um, so let me ask you this. Depression, I've heard it said, is a chemical imbalance. It comes about because of a chemical imbalance in the brain. So wouldn't you need some other chemical to counter that or uh that has been the way it's been presented in advertisements uh mainly that there's some kind of chemical imbalance and that if you take new chemicals you can undo the imbalance uh none of the research has supported that idea so that's not necessarily true it's not necessarily true it seems that uh this is something that has been very successful in advertisements and advertising has been a big uh help to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting that the rate of taking uh, antidepressants, for example, remained at about the same level up uh, to the uh, 1960s uh, and to 1980. But after 1980, and over the next 20 years, there was a tremendous upsurge in the taking of drugs, about 300%. And Two basic things seemed to happen in the 1980s that, uh, that made a difference. There was a new class of drugs that hit the market, uh, drugs like Prozac, Paxil, mm. Zoloft. And these were introduced by the media as miracle drugs. And there were many uh, magazines that had on their covers miracle drugs. But it was, there was a second thing that happened that was also very telling. Uh, and that was the United States passed a law allowing direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs. Uh, this surprised me when I read it, but it made sense. Uh, there are only two countries in the world that allow direct 
to consumer advertising of prescription drugs, the United States and New Zealand. And once drugs became, became advertised on TV and radio, there was a tremendous upsurge in the use of drugs. And uh, that, that's made a, a big difference. And by the year 2010, about one out of every four women in the United States was taking antidepressants. And 15% of the men were taking antidepressants. And we had become a nation committed to uh, better living through chemistry. And uh, Lily Tomlin, the comedian and observer of the human condition, has stated, tongue-in-cheek, reality is just a crutch for people who can't cope oh, with wow. drugs, which yeah. I, I thought sort of captured it in a humorous way. Well, it's true. You turn on television and you can't watch anything without seeing a commercial for some medication. That, that's know, true. Help you sleep better. Help, I mean, oh. And it gives you the sense that medications are the way to go with just about any problem you might experience. And of course, uh, all of the uh, uh, new data is beginning to show we've got a tremendous problem now to people taking opioids and other medications right. at, a, at a tremendous rate, right. rather than trying to uh, learn about how, to, how do you deal with the emotional problems and the traumas and conflicts that all of us experience. Well, now, are there some mental disorders that do require medication, though? Just well, the uh, obviously the the more serious mental disorders are talked about most frequently: uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorders. As, more serious, but probably more rare too. Uh, yes, yeah. Depression is obviously the probably the diagnosis uh, and and anxiety that most people are familiar with, but some of these others uh, do have medications uh, associated with them, and they are helpful. Uh, however, it's also been shown uh, in many of the more recent studies that adding psychotherapy and talking with somebody about some of the issues you're experiencing may well reveal some of the things that underlie the symptoms and why you develop these symptoms as a way to cope with difficult to impossible life situations. So maybe by uncovering that, you can kind of fix the underlying issues rather than well, just treating... Well, you make people aware of it, and some people are terrified of, uh, of what lies beneath the symptoms and develop ways to cope with difficult childhoods, for example, and trauma that they may have experienced growing up, and develop symptoms that sort of take them away from the realities that they're living in and find it difficult when they uh, grow to an older age where they are more independent but still are very fearful about what, uh, what may lie beneath the symptoms and uh, hesitant to talk about it or even think about it. That makes me wonder if we have a, a new generation of psychologists who are coming up who are able to do psychotherapy with patients. Are they still being taught this, or are they being taught to have, refer them to someone who can prescribe? Uh, no, psychologists, that's a very much part of clinical psychology in terms of the training programs and the program we have here at Upstate, which uh, brings in several uh, interns each year who are in their fifth year of graduate training right before they are getting their doctoral degree and working with patients. Interestingly, also within the last uh, five to seven years, psychiatrists have become more uh, involved with the issue of psychotherapy. Interesting. And we do teach psychotherapy here at Upstate to our uh, residents in psychiatry as well as the psychology interns. And uh, it's been very successful. And the program has attracted a lot of uh, applicants from across the country who uh, come here because they've heard that this is a place where they can learn about they psychotherapy. They can learn the strong. Okay. Yes. Well, um, you've concluded that talking and interactions with a psychotherapist are important for recovery, for like a long-term 
recovery. Why why is that? Have you looked in depth at the reasons? Uh, yeah, we've looked at follow-up studies and looked at things like relapse rates and uh, discovered that uh, those who are... Uh, getting talk therapy and are talking things out and are learning new ways to cope with uh, the problems and conflicts that they're feeling, uh, they're more likely to be able to go on with lower relapse rates. Uh, interestingly, there was a, a, a psychologist in, um, at Michigan State some years ago, Bert Karen, who did a series of studies looking at the impact of doing a certain kind of psychotherapy with schizophrenic patients and discovered that it was very helpful uh, and he tried to get the hospitals in uh, Michigan to uh, hold on to their patients a little bit longer as inpatients to allow this therapy to proceed and demonstrated that it would make it much less likely that they would come back to the hospital if they got the psychotherapy. The hospitals didn't want to do that. Uh, they preferred to have the people coming and going in the revolving door. Uh, huh. Insurance companies don't like people staying at hospitals. Right. Uh, even though it might make it less likely that they'll come back later on. Wow. So giving people tools that they can use lifelong for the rest of their life to prevent relapse. That, that's the idea. Uh, although we, we don't indicate, you know, that psychotherapy cures you of all future problems. Right. But it does provide you with ways of thinking about problems and gives you tools in order to uh, deal with whatever comes your way emotionally. Neat. Well, thank you. Let me remind listeners that you are psychologist Roger Greenberg, a distinguished teaching professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith, and this has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Dear former President Obama, or nudge, nudge, my friend. Well, folks, how would you feel if some foreign country dropped poison gas on Syracuse and Buffalo and killed everybody, roughly 400,000 of us? What do you think the survivors would do with our fury individually and as a country? Well, fact is, every year... Smoking kills 400,000 people in the U.S. My father smoked for 50 years before he quit, probably would have lived six years longer if he hadn't. So for me, it's personal. How do people decide to start smoking now? Well, let me tell you how I did. I was sitting in a country club golf course caddy shack with my 14, 15-year-old buddies. Nothing to do. Several already addicted to cigarettes. Every last one became addicted. The brain of one addicted friend said, give me nicotine now and you'll feel good or I'll make you feel bad. He lit up, offered me one. They were all smoking and all watching. Like all teenagers, I longed to be in and dreaded feeling out. So I started smoking. Moments later, I felt really sick. And right then, before the nicotine could turn my brain against me, I quit forever. 
Looking back, I remember thinking about my father quitting and my mother and uncle urging me not to smoke. Yeah, company helps us reverse bad decisions. For years, I've been wondering whether there is anything I, as a non-smoker, can say when I see people smoking that might give them a little nudge and the hope to quit, something that wouldn't seem preachy. Finally, some words that work. When I go by someone smoking, I make eye contact if possible, and I say, I quit, you can too. Good luck. If we start talking, as we often have, I might add, Upstate has a free stop smoking program, or call 866-NY-QUITS for tips and maybe free nicotine patches. So how about you? Want to join the I Quit You Can Too Club? And now, President Obama, last I heard you were still smoking. But either way, now that you have some free time, how about leading the club? Perhaps doing a blog about quitting, whether you've already quit or not. Think of all the smokers who get to see their kids' weddings and their grandchildren born. All the extra breath for hoops. How much happier Michelle is or would be when you kiss her. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich. I quit. You can too. O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next, the importance of trust in the doctor-patient relationship. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today we're going to talk about doctor-patient communication with pediatrician Dr. Maritza Alvarado. Um, she has just completed her work on a master's in public health from the joint program between Upstate and Syracuse University, the CNY-MPH uh, program. She's also got a certificate in advanced studies in health services management and policy from SU. Welcome, Dr. Alvarado. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So your paper, in your, in your research for your um, master's program, you um, looked into health communication in mass media. So tell me how you came up with that topic. How did you get interested in that? Well, I was on a local television show, and uh, the premise of the television show that we would get patients to tell their stories. It was as far away from a medical show as you could be. Um, we literally just asked them, you know, how did you come about your diagnosis? Tell us how you felt. How are you living with this diagnosis? So it was a, a different take on, on what you would consider a, a medical show. And I liked the premise so much that I thought, well, you know, why not continue and, and see, you know, does this change patients' behaviors or the people who are watching the show? You know, does it change their attitudes, their knowledge, their behaviors, having heard 
how people can overcome, you know, the obstacles associated with their illness. So you had a hypothesis that people who watch a particular program gain the health knowledge and because of that, they'll change their attitudes or behaviors based on learning that from the program or whatever. That was the hypothesis. Um, we had a very small study, a very small survey. Um, so I was not able to really find out if the television show itself had actually changed knowledge, attitudes, or behaviors. But then I did some more research and found that um, mass media can be an effective tool uh, to change patients' behaviors mostly. All right, so patients may get their information through medical television series like ER or through reality programs or a medical talk show, Dr. Oz, that type of thing, or through news programs. Um, are any of them in your research, did you find that any of those are trustworthy and is one more trustworthy than, the, than another? I, I think you have to be really careful with television um, because there's the, the truly medical show, which just goes right over people's heads, especially if it's got a lot of detail to it. And then there's what I call the reality TV, where it's um, kind of more entertainment-like. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to be careful, like, where you're getting your information. Um, if you have, say, a public service announcement, that, I think, would be a little bit more effective because you're targeting a particular audience and a particular either disease or behavior that you're looking to change. So I think you really have to look at, at your sources and then, you know, do some research to find out what would be the most appropriate thing for you. Yeah, so the public service announcements come from health entities or they health come from health government entities or... government um, those would be I would say the most consistent in the message and the ones that you could trust the most okay all right well your paper quotes Sir William Osler um, I pulled this quote out from it he says it is much more important to know what sort of patient has the disease than what sort of disease the patient has so can you tell me what he means by that and why you included it I thought it was very telling that in today's day and age, we're kind of losing the storytelling of medicine, getting to really, really know the patient. And, you know, I guess we, you know, we can get into more detail on that a little bit later. But um, you really have to know who you're talking to, what their background is, their ethnicity, their educational level, because a lot of that makes a difference in how you're going to present information to them and whether or not they're going to follow that information. And yeah. I take my mom as an example. Um, you know, if you call her by her first name and she doesn't know you, especially in a patient-doctor relationship, she's going to be all of a sudden, the wall's going to come up, and it's like, you know, I, I don't know you that well. Let's develop a relationship first. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are that way. They, they want to be, you know, you don't have to be friends with your patient. I mean, you could be. Um, but the thing is, they, they want to develop a relationship so that they know that uh, they can trust you. And that, I think, is, is the key thing there, is to get to know the person that you're going to be taking care of. So how do you do that as a physician when you come in and you've got a new patient? And, I mean, a physician has a first impression of, of someone just like, like anyone might have. How do you get away from that first impression, which may or may not be accurate, and learn who they are? You start by asking a series of questions, depending on, you know, why they're there. And then kind of, you know, usually if it's your new visit and it's a new patient to you, you hopefully will get a, a good chunk of time to be able to have a nice conversation with them to get some details about their life and then go into why 
there. So that's maybe why the first visit tends to be longer. It tends to be longer because that's the time where you should be asking those types of questions to get to really know the patient. Um, yes, you may have to make an acute diagnosis at that time, um, and but you can gather that information while you're talking to the patient. Their educational level, um, is that just so that you know what you how you can speak to them or if they have a if they have a medical background maybe you don't have to if they have a medical background then it makes it much easier to to have a conversation but i can't um talk about like say for example seizures and use all these huge medical words with someone who probably has like a high school education it's not going to make any sense to them Um, i have to bring my language down to a literacy level that they can understand. And the other reason for um, knowing what their educational level is, if you're going to give a patient a handout, you have to make sure that it's tailored to what they can read and understand. Um, So, you know, it's very important to to know their educational level, plus their ethnic background. Uh, Some people are reluctant to talk about certain things, so you have to figure a way to... Um, get around that um, reluctance to talk about it. Um, so it, it's a lot that goes into that first that first visit. Interesting. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on air, and we're talking with Dr. Maritza Alvarado about health communications. So, in your own practice um, with pediatrics, um, how important would you say communication is between doctor and patient, who may range in age from infancy to <laughs> to 18 or 21 yeah. depending <laughs> on depending on your practice um a lot of it with the younger kids is visual you look at them and you try to figure out you know is this a child who's in pain is this a child who's happy and content i think the the communication comes in as the kids are older and a little bit able to verbalize what's going on. I would think with adolescents, despite their reluctance to talk, that might be the best communication that you're going to get. It may take you a while to, to pull it out to pull it out <laughs> of them. But I think that that's the best communication you'll get. But a lot of it is is visual in pediatrics and, and in, in most you know, capabilities of medicine, you have to be able to see the nuances, people's faces, what they're telling you, how they're sitting. It, it's a whole complex uh, relationship. And just like um, a parent has to learn how their baby's communicating mm-hmm. long before the baby can speak, you, exactly. I mean, you have to kind of You have to pick that. up on those little things. But then you also um, have a parent to communicate with mm-hmm. as well, right? And sometimes, depending on the age, maybe at the same time, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I had, when I was in practice, I had, you know, parents who were teenagers. So my communication with a teenager was going to be way different than my communication with a college-educated adult. So you really have to, you know, look and see and try to visualize, like, what is it that this person needs from me? Um, and how can I make them understand what needs to be done for their child? So again, knowing their background, their mm-hmm. educational level, their ethnicity and, and uh, culture and, and all of that. Um, I've heard other physicians talk about, when you talk about like the importance of listening to a patient, they talk about it like storytelling, mm-hmm. like the patient has a story to tell. And if you listen to them, you know, that, that will help you take care of them. In this age of electronic medical records, um, is that changing? Is the dynamic different? It's, it's interesting. I've heard from people on both sides of the spectrum on that. Uh, Some people say, wow, it's great. You know, you've got a checklist. You can go down the checklist. But I think that that's a little impersonal. 
Um, it's great for data gathering. I mean, if you have a lot of data, then you can analyze that data, data look at trends. Um, but I think when it comes to the relationship, I think it really puts a wall up, um, literally and figuratively. Um, right. Most offices nowadays are not configured for the EMRs unless you're setting up a new office. So it makes it very difficult. One of my physicians actually had to balance her laptop on her lap so that she could sit and talk with me. Um, other offices, um, you're literally talking to the side of the physician or the nurse if they're taking the history um, because they're they're literally at the counter with their face in the computer. In, inputting into the computer. Inputting the data. So, I, you know, I feel it's a little impersonal. Well, isn't it hard as a physician to go back to those records because you, you may have five different patients who all have, I don't know, diabetes and they have the same kinds of things, but they're very different people. So how do you even learn to tell them apart from that? You know, I don't have experience with EMRs. Um, but from what I've understood, uh, people will make notes and then go back. So they're still relying on paper notes to try to figure out the differences and the nuances. So uh, adhering to the EMR stuff, the mm -hmm. electronic medical records, but also doing sort of their own thing. With doing sort of their own thing and, and just trying to figure out how to piece all that information together to be sure that you're still dealing with the person who's sitting in front of you. Well, so medicine has electronic medical records and the rest of the world is exploding in social media with emails and texting and Facebook messaging and Snapchatting and all of these other ways to communicate. Mm -hmm. Are there doctors um, that you found or know of who are comfortable communicating with their patients in that environment? Um, I believe that there are. Um, I'm not sure like how much you can communicate because you have to worry about the privacy HIPAA issues. Yes. Um, but certainly, you know, if you want to post something on Facebook, so say, for example, you're a plastic surgeon and you have a Facebook page mm -hmm. and you get your patient's permission to post their pre and post uh, surgery pictures, then that would be a way of communicating, you know, this is the type of work that I do. Uh, certainly, I've communicated with physicians via email. But right. once again, you know, you have to be really careful um, what you put out there. Um, you don't want, if, you know, if somebody's account gets hacked, you don't have that security. Although what a lot of physicians are now doing as part of their medical records is they have a secure site where you can go and you can take a look at your medical records and, you know, see what transpired, mm -hmm. you know, during whatever visit that was. Okay. Well, do you have any advice for doctors or for patients on how to improve communications with one or the other? I think, you know, the thing is develop that relationship is the, is the most important part. You have to have that relationship and that trust. And once you have that, then I think the rest falls into place. But without that trust um, and getting to know that person, it's going to be very difficult for you to gauge whether that person is following your instructions, directions, taking their medications appropriately. So that gets kind of to the heart of a, of a, of a relationship. If you don't feel like you can really trust that person, maybe that person's not the right doctor for you. And I've always said that to patients. I mean, personally, I have, you know, told patients, you know, I, I just don't think I'm going to be able to help you because there was, there were expectations that as far as I felt were really unrealistic. And it's like, okay, we're already not Seeing, we're not clicking. I, we're, we're not, not clicking. We're not seeing eye to eye. Um, so I, I have told a number of patients, I think, you know, maybe you can try so-and-so, 
you know, within my practice, it's like I think that you'll click better with them than than with me. And you know, I don't take it personally. It's, it's just you know, you don't get along with everybody. You right. meet right, and That's, people are different personalities and different styles of exactly understanding exactly. Well, interesting. It's a good topic. Thank you so much for coming here to discuss it. Um, this, again, has been Dr. Maritza Alvarado speaking about health communications. I'm Amber Smith, and you've been listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Medicine can work miracles, and sometimes the results happen quickly. But more often, medicine means we must accept a slower pace, a lengthening of time and patience to see what may come. Two poets illustrate this most beautifully. First, Paul Lamar from Albany describes watching his mother as she waits in the radiation department for her name to be called. St. Peter's Hospital for my mother. She's in a guise, wearing the wig like a habit or a clerical collar. She swings her purse like incense, speaking the special language of cancer. In the waiting room, they sit in rows. Her bracelets call them to worship, the waiting room, the person on the left, the radiation machine, in the article in Smithsonian about the bat caves of Brazil. Every word is holy. The acolytes come from time to time in the middle of the service and quietly borrow a supplicant. My mother never skips a beat, but fills the chair of the one who left, roaming, roaming, smoothing her alb with lovely painted fingers or stroking the arm of someone who has just come off the street. The doctor calls. She grabs her wig and stuffs it into the bag, now truly the monk, the holy one, beyond all holy ones. The second poem by, by V.P. Loggins is called Waiting. It shows the poet trying to use the time productively. Waiting. Not after Elizabeth Bishop spent the day in the waiting room looking at the National Geographic while her Aunt Consuelo was visiting the dentist, or Lawrence Ferlinghetti waited to wonder how long it'd take for wonder to be reborn. Not since these has the world been in need of another poem about waiting. Yet here you are, surrounded, it seems, by others in the same condition, waiting for your name to be called. You look around for something to read, and as usual, you are dissatisfied with the selection of popular magazines, all those glossy photos. But when you hear the voice behind the desk pronounce your name, you forget the magazines, you forget the poem about this waiting room that you were intending to write. All you think is that now it's over, and like some kind of birth, they are about to deliver the news you've waited all your life to hear. For listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore the nutritional benefits of whole grains and we hear from a trauma surgeon about the proper use of tourniquets to stop bleeding. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you.